There was a certain man of Ramathiam Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah and to his wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat and why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorposts of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord. I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Fathers, we turn to the story of Hannah and eventually of Samson, Saul, David, and Solomon. Help us to see these not merely as morality tales of a people long ago, but instead as men and women like us, into whose lives trouble and triumph come, and through whom you do your work. Oh God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear how you were at work among us today. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. You may be seated. 
I wonder what you think is perhaps the greatest objection people have to Christianity today. What is the greatest objection people have to Christianity today? A lot of people, particularly the so-called nuns or the ex-evangelicals, people who have left evangelical churches, they complain about the pairing in their churches of politics to faith. That's a big objection for them. Maybe a, a big objection for some of our neighbors is our changing sexual norms in the culture around us and the feeling like the church just needs to get with it when it comes to gay rights or people living together or having sex outside of marriage, that, that those are old ideas that need to be brought into conformity with the times. One of the oldest objections to Christianity is, I still think, one of the most pressing, and that's suffering the old problem of evil. How can God be good? How can God be powerful? And how come bad things still happen? And we can big, look at big bad things, things like the Holocaust or ethnic cleansing in Africa. But I think for a lot of us, the real problem that we struggle with, and even as believers, sometimes the challenge that we have in going to God and trusting Him is the suffering that hits us, the personal suffering that is common to all of us, a sudden death, a scary diagnosis, the abuse that we suffered, the deep pain, the fear, the sadness that at some point touches every one of us. Suffering causes us to question maybe not God's existence, but whether or not God can be trusted. Now some people try to divorce God from the negative realities of the world around them. In fact, whole philosophies, whole religions have been created that say God has nothing to do with suffering. And that sounds really nice until you actually begin to suffer. And then you have to wonder if, if God's not in this, if this is just random, am I just unlucky? Or, or is this karma? Am I just getting what I deserve because of something that I did? If God isn't in our suffering, then there is never going to be any meaning to it. There will never be any hope in the midst of it. There will never be any purpose on the other side of it. As Christians, we believe that God is present in our suffering, and we confess that God can even use our suffering for our good and for His glory. And that's what the story of Hannah demonstrates to us today. Hannah's story begins in darkness. And that darkness leads her to pray a desperate prayer. 
And on the other side of that desperate prayer, you and I will see the deeper purposes of God at work. Darkness. A desperate prayer in the deeper purposes of God at work. That's where we're going this morning. Hannah's story begins in darkness in part because of the time period in which Hannah's family lives. They lived during the time of the judges, at the very tail end of that period after the conquest of Canaan and right before the establishment of the kingdom. But you remember that during the time of the judges, Israel had a problem. There was no king in the land, and so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that sense of self-rule, that sense of, I'm going to make my own decisions, I'm going to make my own way, I'm going to decide what's right and wrong for me, that shows up even in Hannah's family. Hannah's husband, Elkanah, appears to be a believer. We read in verse 3 that every year he takes his family up to worship and sacrifice to God at Shiloh. Now some of you as casual readers of the Bible, you might think, now what's going on there, Eric? Why are they in Shiloh? Isn't, isn't the temple down in Jerusalem? We remember that when Israel flees from Egypt and is in the Exodus for 40 years, God instructs Moses to create a tabernacle, a kind of traveling temple. And during the time of the judges, there in the city of Shiloh, about 20 miles away from Jerusalem, the tabernacle ends up kind of becoming a sort of religious complex where everyone would take their sacrifices and come up and worship God. And so even this traveling tent ends up having some kind of structure built around it, archaeologists tell us. And so this is where Eli and his sons are ministering, and this is where Elkanah and Hannah come up to worship. But even this believing family, even this worshiping family is doing what is right in their own eyes. Do you notice that? Elkanah has two wives. And the Bible never shies away from telling us about many of our heroes who practiced polygamy. But anytime you read the Bible, you never get the sense that this is something that God approves. In fact, we read from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2 that one man and one woman will join together in one flesh, that that is the way that God designs marriage. And then in the book of Leviticus, God through Moses actually provides the laws that legislate how a man and a woman are supposed to interact in their marriage. And you can fast forward into the Gospels and see how Jesus even identifies the marriage of a man and a woman as something that is beautiful and holy, and Paul himself will say that mirrors the church's relationship to God. But polygamy was widely accepted in the culture. And as a cultural accommodation, it was something that sadly even Old Testament believers fell into. Aren't you glad that never happens today? 
Several authors have pointed out that anytime you read about polygamy in the Bible, there is family strife. There are no happy polygamous marriages in the Bible. Everyone is miserable. And that's true in Hannah's case. She is subject to Peninnah's scorn and abuse. In verse 6, Peninnah, the second wife, she is described as Hannah's rival. Maybe some of your Bible translations have a different word there. Maybe adversary or even enemy. She provoked Hannah grievously to irritate her. The language that's used there is reminiscent of a great storm that would batter ships. Peninnah was a force of nature in Hannah's life, set to take her down. And even more tragic, Peninnah used this annual opportunity to go up and worship as a special time to make Hannah's life a living hell, badgering her to the very point of tears. Why? Why would she mock Hannah? Verse 6 tells us, because she was barren. Now, having children is a, a, it's a cultural ideal for a woman in, in nearly any society, but in an ancient agrarian society, it would have been especially important. The more children you had, generally the wealthier your family would be because there would be more people to work in the home or in the field or to send out and start new things. And as you got older, the more children you had, the deeper your social safety net was. There was no such thing as a pension or social security back then. There was an expectation that the children would take care of their parents as they aged. But this isn't just a run-of-the-mill difficulty of having children, is it? No, we read two times in verse 5 and in verse 6 that the Lord closed Hannah's womb. So let's make sure that we understand this. Hannah is in a plural marriage she is subject to the abuse of fertile myrtle. And to top it all off, the one that she might normally turn to for comfort is the one who is afflicting her. Now, God isn't just being mean to Hannah. Back in the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy, before Israel had crossed over the Jordan River into the land of promise through Moses, God had told Israel, listen, as long as you keep my covenant, this is going to be a paradise for you. It will be as heaven itself. You're going to live in cities you didn't have to build. You're going to eat the fat of a land that you didn't have to plant. It's all going to be provided for you out of my great love for you. 
But if you break my covenant, all of the curses that fell on the people of this land, they're going to turn on you. And one of the most significant curses is he said, your women will be barren. You see, that means that Hannah is an object lesson. It's not just her own personal suffering that she feels as a woman who wants to have a child but can't. Hannah embodies the nation of Israel as a whole. And like Israel, she needs rescue. She needs salvation. She needs the curse of sin and shame lifted off of her. She's got no power to do it in and of herself. There's nothing that she can do to turn this ship around. You know, and and bless his heart, but Elkanah is no help, is he? Look at verse 8. Why do you weep? Why aren't you eating? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? He's dumber than a box of rocks. (laughs) Where can Hannah go? What can she do? Hannah goes to church. Look at verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk, Hannah rose. Eli was sitting at the seat by the temple. Verse 10, Hannah was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And no razor shall touch his head. If you give me a son, O oh God. Now, at first sense, this maybe seems like Hannah's bargaining a little bit. Lord, if you give me a son, I'll send him to seminary. <laughs> we'll have a pastor in the family. We'll be so happy. But the prayer is far more shocking than a simple quid pro quo, isn't it? If you give me a son, Hannah prays, I will give him back to you. Samuel, the the boy that will be born, he isn't just a gift from God. In Hannah's mind, he is a gift to God. And Hannah isn't thinking about just kind of making sure that he learns his catechism questions. Hannah vows that he will be a Nazarite. That's what this language is of not cutting his hair. You remember Samson, who was also a Nazarite. A Nazarite was someone who had specific rules that were laid on their life as a sign of their total, absolute dedication to God. Do you understand what this means It means that after Hannah gives birth, she will still be childless. Samuel won't grow up in her house. She won't watch him go through all of the development 
She won't have the emotional richness of having that child. And she won't have a son who will secure her future into her old age. Hannah is willing to give it all up. Even the thing that she longed for her entire life. How can you do that? How can you turn that corner? I think Hannah's prayer changed her. I can't conceive that Hannah went up to the house of the Lord with this plan in mind. But I think that as she was there in her grief and in her desperation, her worship changed her heart. Look at the words that she uses in verse 11. Look, look at me. Remember me. Don't forget me. When we read something about God's remembrance, friends, that's not because God forgets. It's not because God forgot where He put His keys. When God remembers, He pays special attention to someone. He lavishes special care on someone. And Hannah knows that she is the recipient of God's attention. That she is the recipient of God's special care. She is praying with faith, not because she is confident in getting what she wants. She is praying with faith because she is confident in the One to whom she prays. Hannah could not have understood what God was up to in her life. But Hannah knew that God was with her, even in her darkness, even in her distress. This is why, verse 18, she leaves and her face is no longer sad. I intentionally stopped the reading right there because I want you to pay attention to that. It's before the answer to prayer. It's before she gets a son. She doesn't know how God is going to answer her prayer. She doesn't know if she will ever hold a child in her arms. Eli, the priest, he assures her that God would see her, that God would remember her, that God would not forget. Now, so far, this just seems like the simple story of one woman suffering, but there's more going on here than meets the eye. There's a deeper purpose of God on display. Let's finish up with this. Now, part of the problem is the person that should understand the deeper purposes of God, Eli, he's a bit of a joke. He's the one person in this story who should be able to discern what God is doing. He's the professional, right? But he ends up being spiritually blind. In verse 14, he watches a woman pray and he thinks that she's drunk. Put yourself in Hannah's situation and John and Danny and I walk up and go, are you drunk? And you're sitting here praying, pouring out your heart. What kind of pastoral malpractice is that? 
Eli thinks Hannah is drunk partly because Hannah is praying silently. And customarily, people prayed out loud. But Eli is also concerned because these big festivals where everybody would go up to worship the Lord, well, sometimes they became occasions for sin. And drunkenness and even cultic prostitution would accompany the worship of God. Regardless, as we're going to see in future chapters, Eli isn't a great man of God. And this is why it's so frustrating, even what looks like Eli's high point, verse 17, his blessing of Hannah, I mean, it's kind of trite. Go in peace. Hope everything works out. May God hear your petition. Wouldn't you pause? Wouldn't you stop and ask some questions? Wouldn't you try to provide some counsel? Wouldn't you offer to pray for her? Now, Eli doesn't realize that the answer to Hannah's prayer means the end of his family. Eli and his sons will soon die. They will be judged by God for wickedness. And Samuel, the son born to Hannah, he will become the new spiritual leader of Israel. He's going to become the one that establishes the household of David. Eli couldn't see it. Hannah couldn't see it. What about you and me? Do we have eyes to see the deeper purposes of God at work in our lives in the middle of our suffering? Even when it's painful, even when it's overwhelming, can we lift our eyes and survey the landscape and say, God, what are you doing? Friends, there is no way that you get around suffering in this life. You don't get through the end of life without being touched by suffering, and sometimes it's overwhelming. Suffering is sometimes out of your control. It surprises you. It confronts you. Sometimes it may even seem to come from God. Sometimes we bring it on ourselves by our own sin. But no matter where it comes from, Hannah's story reminds us that there is no plan B with God. Even in your suffering, God is working out His will. Even when you think there's no possible way that God can work good out of the pain you feel, God is at work in you, and God is at work through you. Oh, Eric... How? How can I be sure of that? Because in and through Jesus, God has suffered Himself. He has suffered with us, and He has suffered for us, and he has robbed the power of suffering over us. On the cross, Jesus cried out those first words of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he stopped at verse 1. 
He didn't keep saying the rest of that psalm. But David, his ancestor, the one whom Samuel will soon anoint as king over Israel, he kept telling the story. And in verse 24, David says, God has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. God has not hidden His face from Him, but God has heard when He cried to Him. Why didn't Jesus sing that part? He he didn't sing it so that we can sing it. He was despised and rejected. He was forsaken by God, so you will never be forsaken by God. Because He was forsaken, you will never be alone in your suffering. And that means that, like Hannah, we can be confident. We can be confident that God sees us, that God remembers us, that God will not forget us when we turn to Him in prayer. Folks, God invites you to approach Him with the same reckless abandon, the same desperation that Hannah prays with. You may not know exactly how God will act or what God will do, But when you turn your heart in prayer, you are acting in the confidence that He alone is the one who can and work for you. Friends, you can have that confidence today because we have a sympathetic high priest. Not like Eli, who dismisses us with some pious language. No, He has carried our burdens into the very throne room of God. And there, He meets our suffering with power. Power to accomplish His will. Power to work His wonders for our good and for His glory. Let's pray. Oh God, come, see us, remember us, don't forget with the suffering that we carry in our hearts, the ones that we love who hurt, the circumstances that seem so overwhelming. Oh God, speak to us so that we might know your love and care, and power, even as we sit in darkness. Shine the light of Christ on us, we pray. Amen.